Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about the Granger movement. So grab your husband. And let's get civical. at the same time. We did. We're in sync. I'm Joey Fatone and you're Justin Timberlake. I have, of course, Justin Timberlake. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. I'm you, bringing you sexy back. Definitely, first of all, bringing sexy back and second, second of all, you are the front uh, leader of this group. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm in the back giving personality. <laughs> Absolutely not. Without your personality, it would just be me being like, the Supreme Court decided to. (laughs) (laughs) It would be the most boring podcast. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine an an episode with just me? I nobody would know what I'm talking about. I can't read. I I couldn't get through the notes. I couldn't get through anything. I wouldn't make any sense. There's there'd be nobody reading for me, being like, up, 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 up. It's a different word. Uh, look, it was look, so good. Just like in sync, you can't have the band without Joy Fatone and Justin Timberlake together. And just like Let's Get Civical, you cannot have me, Lizzie Stewart, and you, Artem Olentowski. We can't we can't do this without each other. And that's yeah. just. And those, and that's the only parallel between Let's Get Civical and In Sync. Yes, Exi- aside from the fact that um, I can sing, and I feel like you could dance, and we could make. Look, are we? Is it a revival? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> are we going to revive In Sync? Yes. You know what's insane is that there's not a musical with the music of In Sync yet. I feel like it's coming. Give it five it's years. Coming. You're right. It's coming. Right. It's got to be around the road. Like we've done the Motown. We've done the like. 
The We've Carol done meatloaf, Kings. for God's sake. We sakes. did Meatloaf, the Meatloaf musical. Do not get me started. Oh, I know. The, you loved it. I'm so mad that I didn't get to see fucking it. Fucking love that show. It was a riot. And I don't know if it's supposed to be a comedy, but that show blew I, my goddamn I'm sorry. mind. If they tried to do a musical with the musings of Meatloaf and tried to do it like as a straight drama, I think we've missed the mark. It was so, I have never been, Lizzie has heard this story so many times, but for those of you listening at home, I have never been more like connected to my fellow audience members than I was in that theater watching the Meatloaf musical. It was just enthralling. I peed my pants. I laughed so hard. It was so good. I love that. Because it was so bad. It, yes. I mean, and you know my my version of your meatloaf musical is obviously, and then I swear to God, we'll get to the episode, is obviously the Broadway musical King Kong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is. I mean, I went into that Saturday matinee. I mean, and I I had a comp ticket, like, I went with a friend, and I was just like, King Kong the Musical? Sure, fine. Like, I went in like a snob. I went in a snob. I was ashamed of my energy going into that musical. And then once the curtain came up and King Kong entered stage right, (laughs) I was a different person. I was a different person. And I cried thrice. Thrice. But weirdly enough, we are not talking today about the Meatloaf musical and or King Kong the musical. Truly disappointing. You know what else that I forgot? Because we are living in COVID and it's a tough time and it, you know, it only just started getting dark past, you know, 4.30 p.m. Like now it's like 5.30-ish. It's starting to get dark outside again. We missed our anniversary. (laughs) Like our Let's Get Civical launch anniversary. <laughs> oh my God, we did. <laughs> How did we even do that? Because Whoa. Arden, because the insurrection happened, because <laughs> Biden was sworn in as president, because January was insane that you and I simply forgot <laughs> that we've been doing this for two years. Two years. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's so true. Oh, my God. We totally missed it. And not only did we miss it, we missed it by f- a full month. A full-ass full month. month. A full month. We were just, like, cranking them out, cranking them out. Because it's a crazy time. Because I think God. because there was so much going on in January, and you and I were both like, oh, my God. Okay, so when do we cover kind of the insurrection stuff? When do we cover yeah. the fact that we're getting a new president? Like, it's just, so like, it was too much for us to also remember our own birthday as a podcast. <laughs> well, we are nothing if not humble. I just, that's I know. so wild. I know. That's so, so happy wild. anniversary. We're bad parents. <laughs> We're bad parents. I'm sorry. We forgot our child's birthday. But it just means, but because our, because we were just working, we're constantly working on this thing. Yes. And it's, you know, it's not about like the milestones. It's about the episodes that make the, the milestones. Yeah. So I'll take this space to say happy anniversary, sweetie. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy anniversary, babe. Love you. Love this child of ours. Love you. Love you so much. She's great. Thanks for your love and care. And we're celebrating today by talking about. The Granger movement. And I'm not talking about Hermione Granger. No, but wouldn't that be fun? I know. Well, I mean, for, first of all, and then I swear to God we'll get to the episode. First of yes. all, before hopping on this here recording session with you, I was watching Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. 
because it's Ooh. the vibe. I mean, it's a yeah, dreary is- day in mm-hmm. Brooklyn. I'm going to mm-hmm. put on the Chamber of Secrets. And I don't know what number two was. But um, so I am, I do have Harry Potter on the mind, but the Granger movement is not about Hermione Granger. I actually have never heard of it, but, or had never heard of it. And I'm excited to learn more about it. Yeah, I had never heard of it either. I mean, like, I feel like as we talk about it, you'll be like, oh, I guess that is where that comes from. But like, as like a thing with a name, no. Sure, as uh, of the movements, the Granger is, is... is further down on the ones that I know, but that's why we do this podcast. That's right. That's why we've been that's doing right. this podcast for two years. And that's why haven't we find forgotten. out the things. That's why nope. we find out the things and always remember everything. Except our anniversary. Except our anniversary, which doesn't matter because because no. it's our our love is more than just one day. It's true. You know. It subsists. It it goes on and on. On and, and on. on and on. Uh so before we jump in to the Granger Movement episode and talk about what it is and what encapsulates it. Do you want to go over today's sources? The sources. I would love to talk about the sources. I always like to say sources as I'm about to say Sarsha Ronan. Oh. So our Sarsha mm-hmm. Ronan sources. Sarsha Ronan sources. Um, I just always pick up on whatever accent you throw at me with the word sources and I try and keep it and I often fail. Look, you yes and. That's all we can ask for. That's all we can ask for. It's all we can ask for. I am not an improv trained individual. I just, I pick up what other people put down. You're an empath. That's true. That's true. I try. So sources today coming, the information is coming from Britannica. Love. Lover. George Mason University. Absolutely. Encyclopedia.com. And PBS. Oh, I love when we pull from PBS. I know. They're always a fun one. They're good. They have like, there's a little bit more, like there's some flowery writing, but they also seem to have facts that like other, I can't find other places. Like whoever their researchers are, I think are just top notch. Well, if I'm going to leak facts to anybody, I'm going to leak them to PBS because it's a classy joint. Like PBS aired Downton Abbey for God's sakes. Like posh. Yes. Yeah. Posh, beautiful sources. That's what PBS stands for. That's what the <laughs> posh, beautiful sources. Get it, honey. Oh Get my it. god. Oh my god, that's so good. Thank you. I look. <laughs> this is what I contribute. You gave us six pages of notes, and I somehow came up with posh, beautiful sources as what the acronym for PBS. PBS. What oh it my god. For. That's what it's, it's better than be, public, um, what, public broad- broadcasting casting studio sy- system? Studio? You don't, you tell I think me. it was system. I think it was, I think it's system. Great. It's, I mean, posh, beautiful sources. Oh, infinitely better. Above. Infinitely yes. better. Yes. Infinitely better. Do you think that, that like posh, beautiful sources would have their funding cut? No. No. Public broadcasting system? Asking we don't need Laura Lenny to ask for money for us no. for posh beautiful no. sources. Mm-mm. No. no, we do Mm-mm. not. We nope. can just we can fund ourselves. I love it. Anywho, okay. So those were that's where the information is coming from. Those sources. So first, we're going to talk about the Granger movement. What it is. What it was. Love it. What happened to it. Set the um, stage. Set the stage. We're going to set the stage. So the Granger movement. It was not a coalition of Hermione Grangers, like Lizzie said. It was a coalition of U.S. farmers, particularly in the Middle West, 
that fought monopolistic grain transport practices during the decade following the American Civil War. I love it. I already love it. I love it when we're fighting. I mean, look, I've been dealing with Con Ed for the past two days. And if there's anything that I know is that monopolistic practices yes is no good and the fact no that good. only one company services mm-hmm. the entirety of new york is a capital p problem it is so problematic there is no reason why my internet is 80 bucks a month spectrum oh my god like, don't get me started on optimum <laughs> optimum we're like optimum i'm gonna steal your money that's what I'm it is steal your money <laughs> spectrum give me your bank account like that's yeah. all that they do yep. 80 bucks a month for my internet which and sometimes it goes out and i'm like listen you have my blood what do you what want more what can more I do? could you possibly need yeah so i'm <sighs> i'm honestly i'm fully i'm already 100 percent with the farmers of the yeah. middle west post-civil war they have my complete support yes we're there we're there with them so the granger movement Began with a single individual. His name was Oliver Hudson Kelly. Great name. A little bit scared of the three names. Usually they're assassins. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Kelly was an employee of the Department of Agriculture in 1866 when he made a tour of the South. Well, As one does. Oh, God. (laughs) We're stepping into. Hold on to your hat, Oliver. (laughs) You're in for a treat. (laughs) A tour of the South. Shocked by the ignorance of sound agricultural practices, Kelly in 1867 began an organization called the Patrons of Husbandry. Oh my God. Oh you guys, it's only bullet point two. It's going to get real, the, real I'm freaky. Sorry. Let's give it full space. The Patrons of Husbandry. Husbandry. Patrons of Husbandry. This is why, this is why we cannot have nice things is because, is because we're coming up with patrons of husbandry. I don't even know what they do. And honestly, maybe what they do is great. I'm not sure yet, but this title is crazy. Crazy. You have to be a capital N narcissist to come up with patrons of husbandry. And okay, continue on. Oliver, I don't know what's going on with you, but I'm, I'm here. (laughs) I'm here for it. Keep going. We're here for it. We're here for it. So he created this organization, Patrons of Husbandry, and he hoped that it would bring farmers together for educational discussions and social purposes. Okay, but what if you're not a husband? (laughs) (laughs) These are valid questions. What if you, because not all farmers are husbands. No, but I think husbandry, doesn't it have to do with, um. If you're about to tell me what the definition of, like, I'm sorry. Okay. Is it not a husband? It's not a husband, although I do love that interpret that interpretation is by far more hilarious. But husbandry is actually the care, cultivation, and breeding of crops and animals. It's Oh <laughs> well that makes so much more sense now. Okay. It makes more my- sense, but now it's not as funny. Like we looked up the actual thing and now it's not as funny. I'm supposed to know that? That husbandry doesn't mean husbands? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I know know that I get a lot of stuff wrong, okay? And I know know that I've gotten slammed before because, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. But this, come on. 
How are we I supposed know. to know that husbandry doesn't mean husbands and that it means the caretaking of crops? This one isn't fair. <laughs> this one no, isn't this fair. No, this one's not fair. This is a gaslighting. It really is. No, it really is. The English the English language really did gaslight you here and it led you down a wrong path. Well, it's like do we have therapy. husbandry the the term is that still an active term in farming? I mean, I'm asking you, a local farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, let me go, you know, dig out my bale of hay. Sure. I do think that, <laughs> you dig them out of the ground apparently. But no, I it is I think it is still used, but not not as frequently as it was back then. Got so it. So okay. you're forgiven. Look, also, we're in you. the city. What are we? What crops and animals are we raising? Yeah, the I didn't spiders grow up on a farm. in my apartment are very happy. Like that's all I got. I didn't grow up on a farm. I'm sorry to the farmers who are listening that knew what husbandry was. You can't win them all. You can't win them all. I'm not going to take up more time on husbandry. I'm keeping. I'm not even going to edit this out because I'm going to no. own this mistake. I'm going to fully so own the, the fact that I thought that husbandry meant that you had to be a husband because that's the, <laughs> that's the society we live in. It's that so is good. fully us to be like you got to be. You have to have this random criteria that not everybody else has in order to have access access to X, Y, and Z. <laughs> So, okay, okay. I The only thing I will apologize for is coming so hard at Oliver Hudson Kelly because I thought he created a society where only a husband's could join. I'm oh sorry, Oliver. I'm so sorry. Okay. But from that perspective, the more hilarious part is that this group, the patrons of husbandry, was focused on farmers coming together. Like, of yeah. all things that husbands writ large could well, discuss. That, I mean, I was confused. You, can you imagine my confusion? Like, look at it from my point of view. I was like, why is a group of husbands <laughs> coming together to talk about educational discussions and social purposes of farming? Like, it seems like there's other things you can talk about. But, like, men are weird. Like, like weirder things have been created. So I was just going for it. Men are weird. It's so Men true. are strange. I'm sorry. They're so bizarre. Look around creatures. us. This is the result of men. It's a. It's weird. Oh man. Oh my god. I don't know how we're even gonna get out of this one. The, this is I, so good. It is a hole we are in, and I am so here to wallow in it. I love it. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. <laughs> okay, but okay. you're gonna love this next bullet point. No God. <laughs> Okay, the organization involved secret rituals. Come on, come on. I know, involved secret rituals and was divided into local units called granges. Okay, so we've gotten to granges, thank God. So we're getting getting to the purpose of what this episode is about. That was all the setup. That was all setup. That was all setup. That was all act one. That's all act one. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. At first, only Kelly's home state of Minnesota seemed responsive to the Granger movement. But by 1870, nine states had Granges. I love it. Grassroots. Yep. Grassroots movement, if there ever was one. Yep. By the mid-1870s, nearly every state had at least one Grange, and national membership reached close to 800,000. It's a lot of husbands, let me tell you. It's a lot of husbands. That's a lot of men in rooms together. Yeah. No good. No good can come from this. (laughs) 
That's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot of Nintendo. What drew most farmers to the Granger movement was the need for unified action against the monopolistic railroads and grain elevators, which were often owned by the railroads, that charged exorbitant rates for handling and transporting the farmers' crops and other agricultural products. The movement picked up adherence as it became increasingly political after 1870. So the the people in the Granger movement were like, we just want to sell our crops and our meats and the stuff that we have to sell. But we're like the railroads are making it really hard because they're charging us a lot of money to transport it. Yeah. And then if we want to store the grain, like they're charging us a lot of money to store it in these grain elevators and like we're not making a profit. Yeah. How are we supposed to feed us and our like 8,000 children? Like, right. come on. Yeah. Okay. Continuing on. So in 1871, Illinois farmers were able to get their state legislature to pass a bill fixing maximum rates that railroads and grain storage facilities could charge. So they're like, you can now only charge this much. Yeah. No more. No more. No more. Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa later passed similar regulatory legislation. These laws were challenged in court, obviously. And what has become known as the, quote, Granger cases that reached the Supreme Court in 1877. So obviously railroad people are not happy that they can bleed the farmers dry. And they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll take it to court. Obviously. Scumbags. The lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) So the most significant of the Granger cases was Munn v. Illinois, in which a Chicago grain storage facility challenged the constitutionality of the 1871 Illinois law setting maximum rates. The court, with Chief Justice Morrison Remick Waite. Jeez. I know, we've never heard of him before. We haven't had a Chief Justice Morrison Remick Waite or a Waite court case yet. Um, no. I love that. Yeah writing for the majority, upheld the state legislation on the grounds that a private enterprise that affects the public interest is subject to governmental regulation. So he ruled in favor of Les Farmers. Yep. And we're going to talk about the case a little bit more in a second. Love it. The Grangers became increasingly politically active At their Granger meetings, farmers were urged to vote only for candidates who would promote agricultural interests. If the two major parties would not check the monopolistic, man, that word's tough, uh, or monopolistic. Is it monopolistic or monopolistic? Monopolistic. Monopolistic. I might have said monopolistic earlier, and you know what? We're keeping it in. Keep it in. Keep it in. If the two major parties would not check the monopolistic practices of railroads and grain elevators, the Grangers turned to their own parties for action. So it's literally like grassroots, like we're going to affect political change. If they don't support our cause, then we're not going to support them. Yeah. Insane. Okay. We love to see it. Yeah. With the rise of the Greenback Party... Not to be confused with the Green Bay Packers and later organizations (laughs) for the expression of agricultural protest, however, the Granger movement began to subside late in the 1870s. So we have this other party coming up. Yep. And it's a different type of protesting for agricultural interests and it's sort of taking over what the Granger Party used to do. Or not the Granger Party, but the Granger movement used to do. Movement, yep. 
ill-advised farmer-owned cooperatives for the manufacture of agricultural equipment sapped much of the group's strength and financial resources. By 1880, membership had dropped to slightly more than 100,000. The Granger movement rebounded in the 20th century, however, especially in the eastern part of the country. I mean, sure. The National Grange, as it's called, remains a fraternal organization of farmers and takes an active stance on national legislation affecting the agricultural sector. So it's still around. It's, it's still, still around, doing yeah. its thing. You can still, if you're a, probably a male, be in it. Although I don't know what their rules are now, but it is a Maybe fraternal. they let wives in now. And maybe they let the wives in now. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're living in 2021. Maybe wives can get in on this, in the ground, in, <laughs> on the ground of this. <laughs> you know, I am who I am, and I won't apologize. I won't apologize. No, I wouldn't even dare to ask. I wouldn't dare to ask. <sighs> We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So, so we're going to talk about two Supreme Court cases. First is the one that Lizzie mentioned before, Munn versus Illinois. So Munn versus Illinois was an 1877 case in which the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the power of the government to regulate private industries, Love. which like is hugely pivotal. Yeah, most of our like so many like state and federal laws are based on the government being like. You private company cannot do this, or you private mm-hmm. company can. Here's money to do this, or like, right. you know, it's it's like this is a hugely pivotal court case. Yeah, the case developed as a result, like Lizzie said, of the Illinois legislature responding in 1871 to pressure from the National Grange when it set maximum rates that private companies could charge for the storage and transport of agricultural products. So Illinois was trying to be like. Okay, farmers, we understand. You're having a hard time. It's mm-hmm. not great for you right now. Let's help you out. Railroads, you can't be pulling you bullshit no more. You can't be Cap assholes. It. You no, cannot can't be, be assholes. assholes. 
and they wrote it on yep. ink and it made a change. It did. It boom, made a change. Boom, boom. Stop. Yep. And that's what the le- it was like, you know, hear ye, hear ye, Article 1, Section 3, stop being an asshole. CC mm-hmm. Railroads. And that was it. And that was it. The Chicago grain warehouse firm of Munn and Scott was subsequently found guilty of violating the law, but appealed the conviction on the grounds that the Illinois regulation represented an unconstitutional deprivation of property without due process of law. So the Munn and Scott were like, okay, yeah, we broke this law, but like, we don't think it should be a law. Sure. So SCOTUS help us out. So they go to SCOTUS and the Supreme Court heard the appeal in 1877 like Lizzie said, Chief Justice Morrison Remick Waite spoke for the majority when he said that state power to regulate extends to private industries that affect the public interest. I mean, I I'm I'm with you know I don't know I don't know a ton about Chief Justice Morrison Remick Waite, but I'm with him. I'm completely I'm with him. him on this. You know, you can't yeah. like you. We can't we can't we can't let the railroads run this country. We can't let the railroads railroad us. There you okay. And that's that. And I wish we could just end the episode there. That's right. Because there's not, there is literally not a more beautiful ending than that. It's poetic. Mm -hmm. I am a writer. So because grain storage facilities were devoted to public use, because they were part of how we were feeding the public, their rates were subject to public regulation. Moreover, Waite declared that even though Congress alone is granted control over interstate commerce, a state could take action in the public interest without impairing that federal control. So they were like, yeah, the Congress is supposed to be the one to like set these things, but if it happens within a state, right. you're, not, you're not violating the federal government's power in Congress to regulate... These types of things. Yeah. You can have states' rights or not states' rights. You can't have states' rights sometimes and states' rights not sometimes. Right. Right. It's like, yeah, if it's only happening in Iowa, then Iowa can be like, yo, you can't do this in Iowa. Yeah. I mean, what if, what's he going to do? Say you can't? I mean, come on. He's like, yeah. My hands are tied. I feel like he's like, my hands are tied here. It's in the yeah. states. It's Sorry. in the states. I, Yeah. So Munby, Illinois, was a watershed in the struggle for public regulation of private enterprise. Later court decisions, however, sharply curtailed the government's power to regulate businesses. <laughs> so, yeah. I feel like he opened Which, a can of worms and then Congress was like, ooh, okay, yep, 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 yep. Let's bring that back. Bring it real and it back. Bring it back. Like, we want yes, that power but, back. Like, come, 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 come. Uh, yep. We can't We can't have all of this. The states can't have yep. all the power, obviously. Yep. Which brings us to a second court case, which is Wabash v. Illinois. So this is coming from the George Mason University. Uh, It's coming from George Mason University. During the, quote, gilded age of the 1880s and 1890s, the influence of large-scale corporations dominated not just the U.S. Congress, but also the courts. I mean, yeah, we're booming. Corporations are doing a lot of weird stuff, so the courts is having to, like, hear probably a ton of stuff on the weird things that they're up to. Very bizarre. Nowhere was this more evident than in the U.S. Supreme Court decision in the 1886 Wabash case. So here are the details of this case. 
With rail lines crisscrossing the nation, the question of who would control rail rates and monitor the practices of railroads had become an increasingly difficult one to answer. So yeah, they're all over the place. There's railroads yeah. over here, railroads over there. They're all doing the different things. The, like the subway system of New York City. Those yeah. are all. Those were all different train lines. Yeah, which is chaos. You gotta, you chaos. gotta standardize it. We gotta have a standard here. Yes, for sure. Many states established their own regulatory boards, but since the rail companies operated between states, uh, enforcing state laws on them proved cumbersome and impractical. Yeah, so if I was over here doing something different than what Minnesota is doing, from what, you know, uh, Michigan is doing, you can't mm -hmm. change the laws once you cross the state line. Like, it's just, it's too much. It's it's ridiculous. It was hard. It was hard for them to, to get a handle on. It's not unlike gun rights. You're right. Gun laws, yeah. I should say. Absolutely yeah. correct. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Meanwhile, the railroads operating without the oversight of any effective regulatory body set their own standards and practices, which resulted in, you guessed it, many abuses. I am shocked. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. When the Wabash, St. Louis, and Pacific Railway Company challenged the intervention of the state of Illinois in its businesses, the case eventually went to the Supreme Court. So Illinois is like, you guys can't abuse this. We're going to just, we're going to put a stop to this. And the railroads are like, okay. okay. <laughs> and guess where we're going? Hop on the I train. Because we're going all the way to the Supreme Court. That's right. With Wabash, the court overturned its 1879 decision from Munvi, Illinois, allowing states to regulate railroads. Perverting the original intent of the 14th Amendment, the court decreed that corporations were legally, quote, persons. Ooh, have we heard this before? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Entitled to the amendment's protections. I love when corporations are people. I love when corporations are world. people. Just three years earlier, the court had ruled the Civil Rights Act of 1875 unconstitutional on the basis that the 14th Amendment was binding only on states, not individuals, thereby severely jeopardizing the very rights of freed slaves with the amendment who were the, that's what the amendment was explicitly designed to protect. So they're basically saying yeah. this amendment. You can, is only binding to states. People don't have to do this. And no. it, it doesn't make any sense at all to be like, people don't have to abide by the 14th Amendment. Only states do. But what mm. are states if not made up of people? It's funny. Yes. You states know? States are people. I hear what you're saying. It's like if corporations are people, why aren't states people? People, people. People, people. Why aren't states people? If they didn't have people, we wouldn't need to really regulate them because... There, if we don't have people, they would we just don't have be states. land and cows. It's just land and buffalo. Without people, states are just land. It's true. So the the Wabash case, to bring it back, barred states from regulating interstate commerce, asserting that only the federal government could do so. So Mun v. Illinois happened, and they were like, states can regulate their stuff going on within them. Then Wabash yeah. comes up and is like. Corporations are people. States are not people. States can't regulate corporations. Yeah, they can't regulate interstate commerce. So anything that travels across state lines, the Wabash case basically says the states don't have the right to do that. Obviously, railroad tracks cross state lines. They just crisscross. They crisscross everywhere. They crisscross. Crisscross the United States. So yeah, so the court was like, mm, you can't do that, Illinois. You can't, do you can't 
you can't regulate interstate commerce. That's the job of the federal government. Fair. I mean, not fair, but also like corporations are not people. So. Right. Like, I I understand the reasoning, but I also think, mm, okay, then, like, help us solve this issue. Like, right. we were solving this issue for you because you were doing jack shit, jack shit about it. So, like, how about you help us out and do something? And so they're like, you know what? Railroads. Humans. humans. Beating hearts, lungs. A brain, two legs, two arms, a spleen, a human. That was a beautiful poem. Thank you. That was a beautiful okay, thank poem. Thank you. Came up with that on uh-huh. the fly. Came up with that on the fly. Yeah. That was great. So in 1886, just to wrap up the Wabash case, in 1886, the U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Wabash, St. Louis, and Pacific Railway Company versus Illinois declared that the states could not regulate commerce that went beyond their boundaries. Instead, regulation had to come from the federal government. The decision provided the basis for the formation of the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887. Love. Yep. After the High Court's ruling in 1886, the federal government acted quickly to establish an independent U.S. government agency the following year, which was called the Interstate Commerce Commission, also known as the ICC. Sure. I feel like this is not what the railroad companies wanted. Do you know what I mean? No. I feel like what they wanted was nobody. On them. It totally backfired. They're like, we don't want anybody to regulate us. And so we're going to challenge this thing so we can continue sort of doing our own thing and making our own rules. And then the Supreme Court case sort of handed them a win, but also a loss. Like a win in the in the sense that like the states can't do it, but a loss in the sense that the federal government was like, okay, hold my beer. We've yeah. got a commission. <laughs> we got a commission. Have we got a deal for you? But the railroads regulatory like, commissions, baby. Sh- Should have stuck yeah. with the states. <laughs> Seriously, better to fight with Illinois. So the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, was the first regulatory commission in the country. Love. Yeah. Originally charged with supervising the country's interstate rail operations, its authority was eventually expanded to include all forms of interstate commerce, including trucking, shipping, and even oil pipelines. Love. Yeah. In addition to controlling rates, the agency also enforced laws against discrimination. So they're oh. doing they're doing a lot of work. Sure. I mean, absolutely. I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the Interstate Commerce Act. So in 1887, Congress passed the Interstate Commerce Act, making the railroads the first industry subject to federal regulation. <laughs> they deserve this. Mm -hmm. Legislators designed the law, which established a five-member enforcement board known as the Interstate Commerce Commission, largely in response to public demand that the railroad's conduct should be constrained. So people are like, they're acting up and lashing out. Can somebody reel it in? Yeah, stop them. Yep. The Interstate Commerce Act sought to address the problem by setting guidelines for how railroads could do business. However. The task of establishing specific measures was complex, and regulators, you guessed it, lacked a clear mission. I should be clear, this is all now coming from posh, beautiful, uh, what did I say? Posh, beautiful Sources. sources, known as PBS. The law sought to prevent monopoly by promoting competition and also to outlaw discriminatory rate setting. 
Its most successful provisions were a requirement that railroads submit annual reports to the ICC and a ban on special rates the railroads would arrange among themselves. So they're like, you have to submit a report. We need to know what you're up to. And there's no special rates. You set a rate. That's the rate. That's the rate. There's no friends and family discount. There's no no stranger. First class, middle class, third class. Yes. Middle class. That's it. Middle class. Oh, man. Second class. Sorry. Sorry. I've seen Titanic. I know how it works. (laughs) Determining which rates were discriminatory proved to be technically and politically difficult, though. And in practice, the laws were not highly effective. What a surprise. Mm -hmm. In the following years, the government continued to strip the railroads of their power. One important piece of legislation, the Adamson Act of 1916, enacted an eight-hour workday for railroad workers. Oh, my God. Can you even imagine railroad workers? Gosh. I mean, they're up there with coal miners for, like, how poorly they're treated. But, like, eight hours, I mean, that that only gets you from, like, Chicago to Philadelphia. Like... Maybe they mean the people who are, like, laying the rail. Oh, maybe, yeah. That would make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. But also it's like, I mean, what are they going to do? Stay on the train for 24 hours? Like, yeah, you, you right. do it from like city to city. Get a new get a new crew. Have them right. take breaks. But I think, right. I think it's probably, if I'm guessing who they created legislation around to protect, it's not the people uh, on the train. It's the people who are laying the, the rails, tracks. The tracks. That makes sense. are for sure working in hazard conditions. Hence my oh. drawing my compare my parallel to coal miners. Yes. Agreed. Good and point. And I imagine they were also all or predominantly immigrants as well. Mm-hmm. Continuing on, government control culminated when... Come on! Why is it always him? Did any other president do anything? Like, for the love of God. Okay. When President Woodrow Wilson seized American railroads in 1918, the once private industry would now be a tool of the federal government in the war effort. Sure. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is not surprising to me. Again, this is not me uh, liking um, Woodrow Wilson at all, but it's not surprising that in the middle of World War One, they were like, we're going to use the railroads, if you don't mind. Yes, so just they're ours now. Give us the keys. Give us the keys. And then finally, the Etch Cummins Transportation Act of 1920, which returned the railroads to private hands, advocated a sharp reversal on past policies. The federal government, which had once been ardently anti-monopoly, now encouraged mergers, provided the mergers paired strong lines with weak ones. So this is like the MTA. This is this yeah. is like what happened here, where it's like they they looked around, and they're like, okay, ten of you operating across the continental U.S. is just not efficient. It's it's disorganized. There are good rails and bad rails, and trying to regulate all of you at the same standard is probably frustrating. So let's, yeah, become one. Become one, and we can just keep the standard of quality high. Do I agree with it? No. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, come down on the people who aren't pulling their weight. But like, I don't know. I'm both, I'm not I'm not pro-monopoly. I'm really not. No, I'm not tangent. pro-monopoly. I, I, I like to have choices. I like to have diversity. I like to have options. I like to have, dare I say, lower prices. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't want us to end on like a 
uh, wah, wah. Wah, wah, monopolies because our I mean literally wah, my wah. entire life is driven by monopolies right now I mean New York City is just a whole game of monopoly and and mm-hmm. go is nowhere to be found I'm not passing go I'm not collecting two hundred dollars <laughs> nobody has given me two hundred dollars absolutely a, not mm-mm, mm-mm. No. we are I am. What's that first? I'm in those those first two brown squares that nobody ever wants to buy. <laughs> it's like Vernon. No, it's not Vernon. I don't remember what it is. But you know what I'm talking about. The first two yeah, right yeah, next yeah. to go, they're brown. Yeah. Everybody like doesn't want to buy them because they don't think they're worth anything. You save up all no. your money to buy the boardwalk and park place and you run everybody out of business. I mean, <sighs> the point is I'm, I'm not a fan of an not a fan of monopolies. Not a fan of monopolies. I, I'm not a fan of husbands. What do you want? What else do you want me to say? What else do you want me to say? But you are a fan of Joy Fatone. Joy Fatone. I am a fan of Joy Fatone. Yes. You're a fan of Joy Fatone. Yes. yes. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But yeah. So that's kind of that's our episode on the Granger movement, which I mean, it's so crazy in the span of like ten years in eighteen in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds. We came to this idea of interstate commerce regulations from basically farmers being like, hey, stop charging so much for me to move my grain from point A to point B. I'm just a simple country farmer, Mm -hmm. simple husband that just wants (laughs) to trade my Me and my my fellow husbands are having a hard time. It's a hard time out here for husbands. of husbandry. Oh my goodness! To but it's wild. The it's wives wild. are at home. The wives in are in their home. knitting circle. The husbands are just trying to move their grain, and it's it's hard out here in the U.S. post the Civil War for the farmers. And I get it. And yeah. from that, we got a very massive piece of legislation that still has effect today. It does. It, it really does. does. It does. It does. But yeah. But that's our episode today, guys. So as always, if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. You can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe to us. We love you so, so much. And we will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.